Well, good evening and welcome to our series uh, on human sexuality. We're going to spend, as Marty said, the next five weeks talking about human sexuality, a variety of topics and issues from a biblical perspective. I should probably go ahead and give you the uh, disclaimer, there won't be as many maps as normal in this series. There will be some, so you can start wondering about that, but not as many as normal. But like we normally do, like to take your questions and we'll answer as many as we can, but if you will text them to that number during class, then we'll try to answer your questions on this as we go through it, as is typical. We think about the topic of sexuality in our world. It is a confusing world when it comes to the issue of sexuality. I'm confused almost daily as I get barraged by what our society and our culture have to say about sexuality. For example, watching television the other day, there is a reality, there are actually several reality TV shows about polygamy. One man married to several women. Let me tell you what confuses me about that. I have this vision in my mind every time I see one of these shows on television, reality TV show, of a district attorney sitting in his armchair at home, turns on the TV, sees that, turns to his wife and says, Marge, isn't that our next door neighbors? And lawsuits follow. The other thing that confuses me, by the way, about reality TV shows on polygamy is you don't ever see any on polyandry. Polyandry is one woman married to several men. I take that as a sign that women are just inherently smarter than men. <laughs> so we have reality TV shows about polygamy, which is not legal in this country. We have same-sex marriage, which now is legal in this country. And we have internet apps that will help you find someone else who would like to have an extramarital affair. But perhaps the most confusing thing in our culture about sexuality and the most confused thing at the moment are the discussions about gender in our society. Gender has become one of the ways that you can really see the reflection of how our society struggles with the chaos and confusion of sexuality, the conflicting ideas. A year ago, I taught a series on the New Testament book of Ephesians, and you may know that in the book of Ephesians, one of the chapters, it talks about really specifically uh, gender roles in marriage. And so as we were talking about what the scriptures had to say about that subject, I had come across on social media, many of you probably use Facebook. I'm going to pick on Facebook for a moment. But Facebook is a social media site for you to share information. You put information about yourself. You can see information about your friends and other people on the web. And I had come across in my research there that in your profile on Facebook, where you tell about yourself, one of the things you put in there is your gender. And so when I go in to click on gender, I expect to see your basic male-female but it turns out there were 56 gender options. 56 options for gender. And I was immediately confused. I don't know about you, but 56 options. Let me give you an example of some of what you'd see. For example, one of the choices was that you could say you were cisgendered, which cisgender means that your experience of gender matches your biological gender. In other words, you're born sexually a male. You experience your gender as a male. That's called cisgendered. Agendered means your experience of gender is neutral. This is something that you could put out there for the world to see, that you don't identify with any particular gender, neither male nor female. 
Another choice was bigendered, identifying with both male and female genders at different times. There was transgendered, which you hear a lot more about this, but this was one of 50-some options. Uh, experience of gender is different than the biological birth sex. And additionally, there were choices for males becoming females, females becoming males. And so you begin to see how complex our society feels about the issue of gender, one of the elements of sexuality. Pangender, you can identify as being a third gender, combining both male and female aspects at the same time. And then, probably my favorite, gender questioning, I am confused. I am confused by my 56 choices. Now, you probably are thinking the same thing that I was when I saw this. Why only 56 choices? I mean, that's what came to my mind. That seems a little exclusionary to me. And I want you to know that as I'm preparing for this series and we start to talk about what are the really pertinent subjects, I realized that they have improved this. So I went into my profile to change my gender. And I just heard you say, honey, why is our pastor uh, going into Facebook to change his gender? Well, as I go in there, I realize they've updated this. You're not limited to 56 anymore. In fact, here's a screenshot, me going in. You may now select in your gender, female, male, or custom. Now, I found that intriguing. I don't know about you, but that just really piqued my interest. You also have the option, by the way, of choosing your pronoun. You only have three choices there, but you can choose a pronoun by which you would like to be known. Well, I don't know uh, uh, that I've ever told you this before in any of the classes, but when I was really little, uh, the, uh, you may remember the original series. I'm talking about the original TV series of Star Trek. When I was really little, that was first run. I mean, it was out. I absolutely loved it. Fell in love with science fiction, loved that. And when I was little, I had a childhood dream. And that dream can now finally be fulfilled. I wanted to be a Vulcan. And now I can. And so that's my Facebook choice right now, okay? And don't judge me for that. Seriously, I'm playing and making a little fun of Facebook and a little fun of social media, but my point is serious. And the serious point that I'd like to make is, is that it's a very confused and confusing world when it comes to the issue of sexuality in our culture. The uh, culture fundamentally at the same time wants to hold on to the idea that sex is an accident of birth and that gender identity is something that can be chosen and constructed. And so our culture wants to see those things as two different things, that you can express your sexuality however and whenever you wish for your personal fulfillment. And so this is the prevalent idea about sexuality in our culture. You're going to hear some things that I, in our culture that I take very seriously. For example, and here's one that we're going to talk about, and we're going to talk about it in a very serious way, and that is there are people who say, my experience of sexuality, my desires are very different than the people around me. That's a serious question that deserves a compassionate and open discussion in the context of biblical teaching, and we're going to do that. We'll talk about that. There are other topics that are very difficult to take seriously, 
And that is the thing that you'll hear quite a bit of is that gender is merely a social construct, that you should construct your gender identity to be customized to what you wish it to be. So you hear some things that are confusing. I was born this particular way. No, you weren't. Gender is completely constructed to be what you want. And so our society is very confused, and it sends out some confusing signals about this. So what we would like to do is talk about what is the biblical perspective. You get inundated with a cultural perspective. We'd like to go back to the Bible and talk about the biblical perspective. So that's what this series will be about. This series will also be very practical. Once we understand the biblical perspective, we'd like to speak very practically about what that means for us. And not only what that means for us in the perfect world, what it means for us in the real world. There are some of us Christians in the world, both here, watching, online, who struggle with issues of sexuality. There are people in the church, there are Christians who struggle with the issue of sex outside marriage. There are Christians, if you believe the statistics, an alarming number of people in our world, including Christians who struggle with pornography, who struggle with same-sex attraction, who struggle with other issues surrounding sexuality. This isn't a matter to be pushed under the rug and not spoken about because these issues and these struggles afflict all of us. And so we want to talk in a really open and honest way about that. The church is a place. This is a place where we can have open and honest conversations about the reality of the struggles of our lives, about whatever issue it may be, but specifically in this series, we want to talk about those issues of sexuality. We want to have open and honest discussions. We want this to be a place where we can bring our struggles and surrender them at the foot of the cross and open up our Bibles and say, God, speak to us. And that's what we want to do. We want to see, God, what do you want to say to us about this specific issue of sexuality? In this first session, I want to lay the foundation. Because when we get into the New Testament, rest of the Bible in general, but specifically the New Testament, and we begin to look at what the Bible says about sexuality, it is going to be impossible to understand that without understanding why the Bible says that about sexuality. Jesus and the other New Testament writers are going to refer back to some very foundational ideas. Think of it as the slab you would pour to build the house on. It's very difficult to, to construct the house, to look at the New Testament passages and say, what is Jesus saying without understanding why is he saying that? So in this first session, I'd like to explore the why of what the Bible says about sexuality. These foundational principles, by the way, apply to everything in the Scriptures. We're going to look at it and narrow it to the idea of sexuality. There are four foundational ideas that appear at the very beginning that set the stage for God's design for sexuality. What, how has God designed this, and how have we gotten where we are? And then we can begin to say, what does the Scripture say about this? What does God want to speak to us about it, and how does he want to guide us? So let's dive in to uh, the principles. We're going to go back to the creation story, and we're going to start right at the beginning with Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. 
This is a foundational idea. I want to draw something profound out of this. Usually when we talk about this uh, in churches, we really are, are arguing about whether it's a young earth or an old earth. Is the earth created in six 24-hour days or was it created over 15 billion years? What I want to pull out of this is really independent of any opinions about that and simply give you an unarguable conclusion, and that is this. God sees chaotic and empty world. That's another way to translate formless and empty, a chaotic and empty world. And he speaks, you remember the rest of this, as he begins to speak into existence, the light, the creation, the dark, the order into the world. God's purpose, what God has done in creation is that he has brought order out of chaos and meaning out of emptiness. That's the way I'd like you to understand this Genesis creation account is this is at its most basic is God bringing order into chaos and bringing meaning into emptiness. And so you will see throughout the rest of the scriptures, whether it's sexuality or anything else, is that God is a God who has an ordered design and he's a God who wants to bring meaning out of emptiness. One of the conclusions of this that really confronts our culture right away is that you are not an accident. You are not accidental. Your sexuality is not accidental. That God has ordered the world and that he created it in a sense of design. That there is in the created order a regulated and purposeful design. In other words, this isn't accidental, it's going somewhere, and it is not chaotic, it is ordered. And for there to be meaning in our lives, the chaos and the emptiness of our lives, just as in the universe, that God has an order, a regulated purpose for us. It's a foundational principle upon which all the rest of the scriptures are based. When Jesus speaks about sexuality or anything else, he isn't speaking to a cultural milieu. He isn't speaking to his whim at the moment. He isn't giving an opinion. What the Bible says is grounded in this why. So, point number one, God brings order out of chaos, and he brings meaning out of emptiness. Sexuality enters this created order very shortly afterwards in the creation of humanity. Then God said, let us make man, Adam, mankind, in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, livestock, the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is where sexuality enters the created order. Now, I know it sounds like an absurd thought process, but God had choices in how he creates. He could have created one individual and every other person look the same as that individual but instead sexuality enters when God creates them male and female one of the foundational principles here as sexuality comes into this is that men and women male and female are created equal but not identical they're created equal but they are not the same and that's a that's a pretty profound principle we're going to see that play out throughout the New Testament in all of its talking about sexuality. You'll see this. Jesus is going to refer back to this principle several times. The New Testament writers will refer to this principle. That has some profound implications for us, that we're created equal, 
but not identical. That means that the biblical view of male and female relationships is neither patriarchal nor feminist. Let me explain that for just a second. The biblical view of sexuality, gender, male, female, is first of all, not patriarchal. A patriarchal view of men and women says men are superior to women. Now, in the context of history, Christians have lived in patriarchal societies. Christians have lived in feminist societies as well, and I'll get to that in a second. But the Bible speaks as a foundational principle of not men being superior to women, but in fact both being image bearers of God. To be an image bearer of God not only means we both have the eternal soul, both male and female, but both are representatives of God. Both carry the authority to carry out God's mission. For example, in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, it says, go into all the world, teach all, you know, make disciples of all the nations, etc. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. That is not something that's given to male or female. As image bearers of God, we are equally charged with carrying out God's business in the world, and that is to go spread the gospel. So the biblical view of sexuality is not patriarchal. The feminist view says not only are men not superior to women, but men and women are the same. The Bible does not teach that either. It teaches that we are created equal, but we are not identical. There is a not-sameness about men and women. There are the obvious biological differences, but there are even more implications of that that we'll see the Scripture unfold as time goes on. So the biblical view of sexuality is neither patriarchal nor is it feminist. Equal, but not the same, and intentionally created to be equal and not the same. There is purposefulness in our difference. And so attempts to erase that really violate and are non-biblical views of God's created order. So he creates order out of chaos, meaning out of emptiness. Part of that is the very creation of sexuality itself. Third principle, sexuality comes into its own. It fulfills its purpose in the order as it goes on, and you see this. In Genesis chapter 2, God is talking about the creation of woman, creates woman out of the side of man, however you translate that, out of the rib is the traditional saying, but out of the side of the man. And the man responds and says this, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. There's a little play on the words. The word for, in this text for man is ish, and for woman is isha. They're related because there's some deep connection here, both in the words as well as in the reality. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So we see order, we see sexuality. Men and women created equal, but not the same. And then we begin to see sexuality take its place in the created order. Sexuality is, first of all, let me just make a couple of obvious observations here. Is number one is, this is part of the created order. Sexuality is good. 
Sex is good from a biblical perspective. It is created as part of God's purposeful order. So it is a good thing. Jesus affirms this and quotes this very passage when he's speaking about the issue of sexuality, and we'll look at that in some future sessions when we talk about a couple of the issues. Marriage, this idea of coming together, the unity and harmony, this is sexuality's purpose in male and female, is to promote this unity and harmony, this coming together of things that are not the same, that are different, and they come together to form something even greater. And so you see God's purpose of unity in this. You know, what you don't see in this verse, and this is where it collides, again, the biblical view collides with the societal view, you do not see in here the idea that sex or sexuality was created primarily for personal fulfillment. That is part of the narrative of our society, is that the expression of your sexuality, the construction of your gender, that these things to be right and to be natural need to be expressed in whatever way fulfills me personally. You don't see that in the biblical perspective on sexuality. Sexuality has far, far greater purpose than the self-gratification of the individuals involved. It promotes, as you go on and you read this and talk about uh, ordering the, uh, filling the earth, talks about be fruitful and multiply. Clearly, procreation is part of this, but nowhere near all of this. Clearly, the idea of this helper attitude, this joining together in God's plan is a part of marriage, but not all of it either. There's something deeply important to God, the triune God who exists in a very intimate arrangement of three and one, and you see a little bit of mirroring, just a hint of that, in the idea of male and female, equal, but not quite the same, but coming together in a way that brings unity and harmony, that fits the order. In the New Testament, the New Testament writers are going to look at this, and they're going to see a a reflection, if you will, of the Trinity, but they're also going to see a forecasting of what the church is like? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ, to be adopted into the family of God, to become the bride of Christ? In other words, using this deep principle and metaphor to explain something that's quite spiritually deep and almost incomprehensible in spiritual terms. So this purposefulness, this order, this regulated order of male and female being different, coming together, being united, is part of God's plan. It is the underlying and undergirding principle for what the New Testament is going to say when we become very practical about putting sexuality into place. So these three principles are part of God's created order. Order out of chaos, meaning out of emptiness. There's a plan. You have male and female, sexuality, equal but not the same. And then you have God's purpose in that not-sameness of unity and harmony as they come together. This is where the idea of marriage comes from. It's where the idea of procreation comes from. Matthew Henry probably has one of the most beautiful descriptions of this. And looking at this passage right before this, and he talks about Eve being taken from the side of Adam. He said, Eve was not taken from Adam's head that she might rule over him. 
She was not taken from Adam's foot that she might be trampled underfoot, but she was taken from the side to be equal with him, from under his arm to be protected with him, and near his heart to be cherished by him. That captures very well. It takes a little license with the Scripture, but it captures the spirit very much of God's created order for sexuality. It is a good thing. It plays an essential role in God's plan. Well, how did we get where we are? Because we don't see this design playing itself out in our world today. We confront a society and a culture that's confused and confusing, that has tenets and ideas that it believes about sexuality that collide with this. Well, as the creation story ends, before we come into what I'd call the modern age, we come to the fall. And what we see there is man and woman living in God's order, exercising their will to say, I will rebel against the order of God, and I will create my own order. I will do what you have said should not be done, so that I might become God. You remember the story of the serpent and Adam and Eve and the fruit of the forbidden tree? What happened there had not much to do with how good that fruit looked or how good the fruit tasted. It had everything to do with humanity breaking with this order of God. And you begin to see chaos and emptiness re-enter this picture. When God confronts Adam and Eve, He turns to the serpent and he says, this is the consequence of what you have done. He turns to Adam and Eve, and in part, this is what he said, to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your labor pains. With pain, you will give birth to children. You will want to control your husband. This is from the New English translation because it's more literal. The NIV kind of obscures what this is actually saying. Listen to this and see if this does not sound like our world. You will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. Do you see the harsh break with the idea of equal, but not the same, of unity and harmony? He says this is the consequence of breaking that order, of rebelling, is that you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. And to Adam, he said, because you obeyed your wife, ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not. Cursed is the ground thanks to you, and in pain, again, toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. So God in the fall, what happens is, is the order of God is broken. And what gets entered here is not unity and harmony anymore, but you see strife and discord. And you see it in several interesting ways. First of all, there's a break in the relationship, the vertical relationship between humanity and God. This is humanity saying, I will not submit to the order of the universe. I will make my own ordered world. It causes then a break between humanity and creation. The biblical perspective on this, on the fall, is that we are no longer in accord with nature. That does not look like the Garden of Eden out there. And the reason it does not is there's a disruption in that order as well. And then probably the most profound for our purposes is a huge disruption between men and women. This is a a great picture. I can get away with this because I told you this would be rated R. But 
this is one of the, this painting captures very much this moment. This painting is about that verse that we just talked about. You notice that instead of looking up, they're looking down. They're broken, the relationship. That doesn't look like the Garden of Eden. It looks desolate, and that represents the breaking of our harmony with nature. And then thirdly, probably the most profound thing this painter did to absolutely capture the heart is you notice, men and women are still together, but they face the opposite direction. And so you see, and it captures in this, the brokenness that comes from departing from that order, the chaos and the emptiness. One of the things that you see is that sexuality, and you're going to see this throughout human history, and you'll see it in the New Testament that's going to speak to this, is sexuality now becomes an element of domination, of competition, not cooperation. God's order, if you think about how God created this as man and woman equal, not the same, coming together in unity, fulfilling a purpose that neither can do alone, but that both can do together. That's cooperation. In the midst of the fall and the breaking of that order and our decision to order our lives, you see between the sexes huge competition. You see exploitation. You see the rise of patriarchal societies that are exploitive. You see exploitation and you see uh, competition in various ways throughout history. This is the legacy of mankind deciding to break with the order of God. What happens with sexuality and everything else, by the way, but our topic is sexuality, is you take something that is good and it now becomes used to fulfill a void that it was never intended to fill. And consequently, it becomes distorted. It becomes broken. And so in, when we talk about sexuality, we need to understand where God is going to come from on this. God wants the original design of equality and harmony and unity to be played out in the midst of a world that is full of strife and discord and competition. And so that's the arena into which the Scriptures come. And you know, when you see something that is good being used for another purpose, it rarely works out very well. I'll tell you a story. This is a, it's a small illustration, but it's a true story. I worked with a guy one time, and uh, he came into the office one day, and he said, uh, man, I mowed my yard this weekend, and it was a disaster. And I said, what, what happened? And he said, well, my lawnmower broke, and so right as I'm getting ready to mow the yard, and I've waited too late, my yard looks terrible, my neighbors are mad at me, you know, my lawnmower breaks, so I, I can't mow. Well, I have to mow. So I look over in my garage, and I see, he says, that I have a weed eater. And he thought, it does the same thing. It cuts grass. He said, I'll just mow this yard with my weed eater. He said, so I fired the weed eater up, and I start to mow the grass. And I said, so how that work out for you? And he said, well, not so well. He said, it took me about three times as long. And before I finished, I burned up the motor in the weed eater. And then as I looked back, I realized my yard looked really bad. <laughs> and I thought to myself, man, that's just wrong. You know, there's just a wrongness in the order of the universe here. What gave you that idea? Well, you see, my point is that anything used outside its intended purpose goes from being a very useful, functional thing to a very distorted, 
very bent, very broken kind of thing. That's the way sexuality is, is that God's design, the why of what you're going to read in the scriptures, is really going to address the issue of God's design. It's ordered. It brings meaning. It brings dignity and equality and respect. It brings a unity out of difference and a purposefulness to what we do. Breaking of that order reintroduces chaos and emptiness and competition and domination and exploitation back into the world. And so as the Bible speaks into the the issues of sexuality, as we move on through this series, you need to understand this backdrop because it tells you where God is going. What are the scriptures trying to do? Now, there are people in our audience that don't believe in the biblical perspective on sexuality, and I welcome you, because if you want to engage in discussion or if you want to disagree with God's view, one needs to at least understand what is God's perspective. When I visit with people who have a very different view about sexuality than the Bible, I'm very interested not simply to say, I disagree, you're wrong, this is not what God says, but why do you think that? What is the foundation? What are the assumptions? What are the truths that you believe about this that lead you to that? So as we go through this, it's very important to understand where God is coming from, what God's purpose is, and how God views what is happening. That's going to make sense of everything else the Bible is going to say about sexuality. Well, let me pause for a minute and see what questions do we have. Um, We have several. At what point in history did sexuality become a taboo in many churches? At what point in history did sexuality become taboo in uh, many churches? I think it was right before playing cards and dancing. It might have been after. I'm not sure. (laughs) I do not know that I can answer that question historically about, well, I can tell you a lot about that, basically. There's no time you can pinpoint. But even in the New Testament, I'll just say this, but I'll try to be really brief because this is fascinating. Even in the New Testament, you'll see the Apostle Paul talking about people who come from an ascetic tradition. Ascetic means denying yourself. Uh, Think monks. Think people that go away and meditate in a monastery forever to try to purify themselves. They came with a very Greek idea that Plato popularized that's very much a part of Western thinking, is that your body, the world, is bad. Your spirit is good, and so your goal in life is to don't let this body corrupt you. You just need to put, get it into shape. You need to, uh, you don't, there were people in the early church teaching, you shouldn't get married at all. Your body's bad. You just need to not eat. You don't need to eat these foods. You need to stay up late. In other words, you need to bring your body under control because it's bad. That's not God's created order, and the New Testament speaks against that. But that idea persisted in Western thinking, and you see it invading the church with a subtle idea, which is not biblical, but that sex and the body is bad, that all your desires are bad things. So I don't know that I can pinpoint a date, but very early in the church, you'll see those Greek ideas come in, and it starts to teach something that's not biblical. Paul is vehement about this. He said that is not what God teaches. He goes back to these foundational principles. He said not only is God create things good, now we have marred it, we have distorted it. He says he created all of these things to be good. Sex is a good thing. Within God's order, 
all these things are good. Outside the order, you see trouble. And so he he's very vehemently disagreed and said, no, we're called to come back to God's order, and these things are clean. This is good. Good question. Um, how is it that in, our, that in our society today, the lack of identifying as male or female is not considered a mental illness? Um, have we gotten to a place that anything that is popular is now excluded from that consideration. Yeah, as far as the details of what's considered a mental illness and what is not, I mean, you can look back, it's just a matter of history as far as certain uh, sex issues around sexuality have in the very recent past been considered aberrant, abnormal, whatever word you want to put on it, and now are not. That's really not a, a scientific issue. That's really more an ideological issue. And I want you to just bear with me because this is slightly philosophical, but not very much. You'll see the parable. What Adam and Eve essentially did, the lesson of the fall is this. I reject the order of God, and I will make my own order. That is the fall. It is a rebellion against God. The ideology behind this gender issue is what we're happen to be talking about. It actually pervades many things, is our culture's ideology that says... I may not be able to stop you from making me biologically male or female. That was an accident over which I had no control. But I reject that, and I will construct my own reality. That is not considered aberrant. That is considered brave, according to that ideology. It's fundamentally the same thing. It is, again, us repeating the rebellion of the garden. And so that's normal in a society that sees it that way. So it's an ideological difference. It's not, there's nothing scientific that happened there. It's an ideological shift. Good question. Um, how is it that some Christian churches support and even perform gay marriage ceremonies if they are biblical? Uh, that's a great question, and we're going to talk about that and a variety of other, other things uh, in future sessions. So it's tough to set the framework for that. This lays the foundation. When we go into uh, the New Testament, and I'll do this in a couple of sessions, we're going to address basically that very topic and others related to it, because I'd like to look at what the Bible says, and I'd like to just tell you why Christians who believe that a variety of things, not just same-sex marriages, but a variety of things are okay according to what the Bible says. I'd like to just give you three or four of the most common arguments that certain Christians would make that that's okay. So I'd like to spend a little time on that and actually just kind of walk through. Here's what the Scripture says, but here's how certain people understand it. Why do they understand it that way? You know, here's what it says, but this is why they think it means this is okay or that is okay or this is not okay or that is not okay. I'd really like to spend quite a bit of time on that, so I'll, I'll defer that, and we'll go into quite a bit of detail. I'd like you to understand why there are some Christians who see it this way. What I'm talking to you about right now is this rejection of God's order is really more of an issue of non-Christians, so to speak, non-followers of Christ, people who haven't surrendered themselves to say, not my will but yours. That's a great way of saying I will submit to your created order because it is good. It brings meaning and harmony and unity. People who do not believe that basically rebel. It's a different question for people who say, no, I do surrender to Jesus Christ. I do follow uh, the commandments of the Bible, but I think 
differently about these sexuality issues. I'd really like to talk to you very specifically about why that is, and we'll just simply dive into some scripture and go through that. So I'll defer that to when we can really do it justice. We do a couple more? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, in the Old Testament, we have polygamy, multiple marriages, children with different wives, giving, having children with different wives, lots of things that do not correlate with the idea of marriage as we see it and as we believe it was presented. Was that um, part of God's plan originally, or was it a cultural issue then? Yeah, let's talk about that briefly. Uh, not just in the past. We have polygamy on my television set. We have polygamy and different wives and children and everything. Well, we got just as much going on now as they did in the Old Testament. You've seen what God's design is. That has not changed. And God is redeeming. We'll eventually talk about that because I want to talk to you about what this means for you and I walking away in some of these sessions. God is redeeming. He's bringing back. He's renewing this order in the lives of his people. So God's design has not changed. And in fact, the kingdom of God brings us back to that design. So there's nothing that's happening with God throughout history that compromises what he is trying to do. There's nothing throughout history of God saying, my opinion changes as cultures change. Here's the way I'd like you to think about it. This is brief, and we can talk about it more later because it's a little off topic. But here's how I'd like you to understand God's people in a broken world, whether it's his people of the Old Testament, or his people right now in a broken world, a disordered world, a world that, that rebels against God's order. What God is doing is taking us where we are in the situation in which we are, and he moves us in a redemptive direction back to his design. That's actually the story of the Old Testament that's the story of the New Testament. That's actually your and my story. If you watch the story of God's people, you see all kinds of broken, disordered, if you now you know what I mean when I say disordered, things that violate God's intent there, you'll see all kinds of disordered things happen, but where's it going? The New Testament says this, for example, the law of Moses, it said, was a school teacher, a pedagogue, a trainer, to bring you to Christ. What's God saying? He said, I found you broken in the midst of all kinds of disordered practices, and my first step was to take the law of Moses and begin to bring you to Jesus Christ. So you will see movement in the scriptures of God healing, redeeming, restoring his order. So are there stories like that in the scripture? Of course, there are stories like that today, and God is moving his people. That's a great way to think about the scriptures, not as a static say this, say that, do this, don't do that, but seeing God fulfilling this design through the lives of his people. And we're going to get very practical from here on out. Now that you understand the foundation, we're going to get very practical about how God is fulfilling that design in our lives in the midst of our disordered world. Which kind of leads to the next subject. I have several questions. I'll try to kind of combine them. But how do we in dealing with people who are having uh, gender struggles, how do we protect our children? How do we teach them that God's view is more important than our own self-fulfillment? Um, and what is the church's desire for us in interacting with people who struggle with gender? Great question. 
And I, I want to answer that in the context of when we talk about that issue specifically, because if I just give you a Twitter 140-character soundbite, it just, it's just not going to plug into the context of what we're doing. But I want to talk very specifically about that. And Marty, I suspect, has a real heart to speak to us about that. But there are different points of view on that, and there are different issues involved. I'll tell you right now the guiding principle, and this is what frees us to deal with people. We're just talking about sexuality. This actually applies to all kinds of things, but in the context of this is how do we deal? Because really what that question is saying is we who submit to God's order, we are obedient to God. We begin to be redeemed and live in that way. How are we going to deal with people who are not in that situation? And the, the history of the scriptures and what God is doing, his method very much informs that. We take people where they are and invite them to walk with us toward where God is. That's the story of everything Jesus did. He said, I didn't come to judge the world. He will. Oh, he's most certainly coming. He said, but I came right now to seek and save the lost. I came to tell you the good news about you follow me and I can lead you back to unity, meaning out of emptiness, order, out of chaos, harmony. That's our charge as well. We find people where they are and we bring them that way. Now, what are the practicalities of that? That question brings up some good practicalities, but nothing compromises our mission to go seek and save the lost. And so people who are in the grip, and this includes Christians as well as non-Christians, who are overcome, who are losing the struggle, if you will, who are overwhelmed by issues of sin, issues of disorder in our lives, our mission towards them is to quite compassionately go find the lost sheep and walk with them back. And so you'll see our approach to this being very true to God's order. We're not going to compromise the truth of God's Scripture. We can't. And at the same time, we will emulate God's approach with us and with his people throughout all of history. So when we get into what the New Testament has to say about it, those two ideas, truth and grace, we will emulate God's uh, method of doing that. And this is going to be a radical change in our culture when we do that. I mean, as we approach our culture, as we go live that out in God's way, it's going to be powerfully redemptive. Good question. And we'll talk about that very specifically when we get to that specific issue, because there are things that, that we need to talk about. But at this point, where are we going? And where have we come from? We've come from something that's good that has been distorted. Where are we going? We are being redeemed by the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to restore God's order, to restore the harmony, to break the competition between men and women and come back to cooperation. That's what we're living out in the kingdom that is the powerful image to the world of what God's world looks like. We're going to continue this conversation in our next session, and we're going to begin to drill down and build on this foundation. But everything you hear and everything you see in the Scriptures is going to be very reflective of this. I know that I am going to make one change this week personally. I know that it was my childhood dream to be a Vulcan, and Facebook has allowed that to happen. But the more I think about it, the more I think that's a little cold, it's maybe a little heartless, it may just not be reflective of the compassion and the person that I'd like to construct. And so I've decided that this week when you visit my Facebook, it'll be kinder, it'll be gentler. 
This is now my chosen gender preference for the next week. We'll continue talking about this next week. Think about those things, and we'll start to drill down and apply them. Thank you very much.